Hey, we're in this uh, week eight of the series that we've called Unsung Heroes, and the whole idea of this series is to slow down a little bit and to look at some folks in Scripture that we might uh, be more apt to just skip over. People that, uh, in many cases, don't even have a name. So our hero today is, is another unnamed character. These are are folks that, that have had an extraordinary impact on the kingdom, but we somehow just don't really even know who they are. So we've looked at all kinds of different people from Old Testament and New Testament, but that what I really am hoping that comes out of this series, and uh, Martin really kind of put the words to this, but when ordinary people are infused with the Spirit of God, they have the opportunity as they walk in obedience to be extraordinary people. The, the, the catchphrase that we put on here, there's a, one in all of us, is what I really want you to hold on to. We all have the opportunity to be unsung heroes. We all have an opportunity to have impact in our community, impact on the people around us for the kingdom of God. The question isn't whether or not you can. The question is whether you will have the impact that God has called you to. That's really the, the thrust of this series. And I'm gonna do things a little bit different this morning. I'm gonna ask you to just listen as I read the story. It is a, a great narrative. It's one of those stories. Uh, it's amazing how many people, even from last night, came up to me and said, this is one of my favorite chapters in scripture. So it's probably a story some of you are familiar with, but I want you to hear it and just listen to it because I want you to engage your imagination. I want you to actually picture yourself in the ancient city. I want you to picture yourself, for those of you who are just in Israel, this will be easier for you than others, but picture yourself uh, out in the, the streets, and maybe it's a hot day, maybe it'll be easier for you to visualize yourself out there if it's hot and not rainy and cold like today, but it's a hot, steamy day, and there's dust coming up. I want you to be in this scene, and I want you to hear it as if you're there, and just engage your imagination as if you're seeing it unfold before you. In this particular story uh, that we're about to read, Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and, and he has one of those teachable moments. If you read the gospel, there's a lot of teachable moments where something happens, or Jesus is, is, is holding something, and, and he uses that as a, a prop, if you will, to, to make a teachable point, right? So, so this, this happens regularly. This is one of those teachable moments, but as they are being discipled, they're learning more about God. They're learning about God's unmerited favor and his love. They're learning about the, the kingdom of God. But if you go back and you read the gospels, one of the things you're going to discover is quite often, Jesus was more about helping them to unlearn something as he was to help them learn something. Excuse me, does that make sense? So sometimes he would actually say, I, I know you think it's this way, but it's actually that way. I know you've been taught this but it's not this, it's actually that. He was helping them to unlearn where they're getting their, their doctrine or their understanding of God messed up. And, and I would say that's still the case. We are often getting things wrong. We still need to be set straight. There's still a need for us to, to unlearn some of our theology. There's places where, I'm just being honest with you, there's no doubt in my mind, there are, there are places where we're just wrong in what we believe. We just, we're human and, and God is bigger than our ability to understand. So that means we have to have this, this, this humble approach and we have to always be willing to unlearn so that we can then learn something. If you spend time in the word, you're gonna have moments of discovery like, man, I've always thought it was like this, but clearly it's like that. That's one of those aha moments. So I'm actually gonna stop right here and I'm gonna pray this over all of us, and then we're gonna hear the story. So Lord, I, I pray in these next few minutes that you would uh, show us where we might be a little askew. 
I pray that we would be willing to unlearn things that we've held on to. Maybe it's tradition, maybe it's just the way we were taught as, as kids or, or something we've held on to, but I pray that we would be humble enough to uh, learn, but in the same process to let go and unlearn what we need to. I pray that there would be seeds of truth planted today that would bear fruit in our souls and grow and, and bear fruit a hundredfold. Pray that we would leave different than we came because we've sat in the presence of the living God. Amen? All right, so this is John chapter nine. Again, I don't really want you to look for it. If you do, uh, you know, that's fine, you can, but I'm just gonna read it to you. I want you to hear the story and, and, and all that's going on and picture it, uh, and then you can grab your Bibles and turn to it afterwards because we'll go back and we'll unpack some of the passages. So nine, John chapter nine, I'm gonna read all the way uh, almost to the end, verse 38. It says, and he, as he, talking about Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now after saying this, he spit on the ground and he made some mud with the saliva and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Shalom. The word there means scent. So the man went and he washed and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, but others said, no, he, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Now then, how were your eyes opened? They asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Shalom and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Well, where's the man, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought, to the, they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been born blind. And now the day in which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. And therefore the Pharisees also asked him, how did you receive your sight? He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. They still didn't believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they ask? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? Well, we know that he's our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now and who opened uh, his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledges that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why the parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and said, give glory to God and tell the truth. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? 
And then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to a godly person that does his will. Nobody's ever even heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and he found him, and he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you've seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. We've probably figured out by now that our unsung hero today is the man born blind. And the question is, why is he a hero? I mean, after all, Jesus is the one that does the miracle, right? And so he's not a hero because of the healing. He's a hero because of the way he responds after the healing. His heroism is found in the way he, he approaches the people around him once he's experienced Jesus. And for us to really understand the story, we have to understand the predicament, if you will, or the the, the plight that this man has lived with his whole life. And we get a clue for that in verse 2. Again, if you want to be open to John 9 now, you can kind of follow along to some of these passages. But in in verse 2, we see these words. It says, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The pervasive belief of the day is that if anything bad happened to you, whether you had a a sickness, if you were blind, if you were crippled, if you had a skin ailment, anything bad that was happening to you, if if your heifer died, that's the same word for a cow for those of you who don't know, if if your sheeps couldn't multiply, whatever the case, if your crops failed, if something bad happened to you, it's because you sinned. It's because you were out of the will of God, right? We see this assumptive thinking again in verse 34 when the Pharisees, after getting angry with the man, say, you were were born in utter sin. How dare you teach us? And they cast him out. This uh, way of thinking is what we call cosmic karma. Cosmic karma means that if you do good, only good things will happen to you. And if you do bad, bad things will happen to you. So you go to a place whenever something bad is happening to, to what did I do? Why is this happening to me? What, where did I get my karma mixed up that, that I'm having these bad things? Or if, if things are going well, you try to stay on that track to make sure it happens. And the problem with this kind of thinking is that it's only sometimes true. The Bible really does say you reap what you sow, right? That there is a kind of, you, if, you, if you do things the right way, it's more likely that things are going to happen well for you, right? If you work hard, you're going to get ahead. It's, it's, I think we can all agree that it's better to work hard and apply yourself than to be lazy, right? There's some ways karma actually plays out. There is kind of an order in God's world that says, hey, if you do the right things, you're more likely to have the right things happen. The problem is the word only, Because sometimes you can do all the right things and bad things still happen. Scriptures tell us it rains on the just and the unjust. 
So if we operate out of a true mindset of cosmic karma and we take it too far, then when bad things happen to us, we have this tendency to reject God or become bitter towards God. We kind of say to ourselves, well, after all I've done, I've tried so hard to walk faithfully with you and now I have this this problem And, and we turn away from God, we become bitter in our spirit. I didn't say this last night, but I've been thinking about this a lot. The truth of the matter, if we really operated under true cosmic karma, we'd all be dust, right? The Bible's pretty clear. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all been enemies of God. And, and so if we really got what we deserved, none of us would be here. So, so just, just, just hold on to that. But the, the other problem we have when we operate in cosmic karma is we, if we're not careful, and I've seen this really my whole life from the church, and, and, and we sometimes lay shame and guilt on other people. They go through hard times, and we say, well, they must be doing something Wrong. They must have some kind of stronghold in their lives. Somebody's suffering from a, a, a chronic illness, and we're thinking, boy, if they, would, they must have something because God hasn't healed them. And so we lay this weird shame or, or guilt on them. And, and so what I want you to see is, is we can look at the ancient world and be like, well, why were they thinking like that? But if we're really honest, sometimes we find ourselves slipping into this cosmic karma kind of mindset more than we should, okay? And so in the man's case, right, this cosmic karma kind of relegated him to being a beggar on the streets. And what it, what it meant is that he was never able to participate in, in what it meant to be a Jew. He couldn't go into the temple. He couldn't participate in the festivals. He couldn't participate in the temple rituals. He would, he would always have been on the outside of every single party that took place. He would be outside of the room hearing the party going on in there, but he would be outside of it. And, and throughout his life, he would have been told, you are steeped in sin. You are less than. You are, you, are, you are not even a whole person. You are untouchable. All the, you are tainted, right? These would be the words that people would speak over him. It was a lie, but the truth of the matter is when a lie is spoken over someone over and over, they began to believe deep down. And I, I think it's safe to say that this man would have internalized that message. I am sinful. I am broken. I am less than. Somehow God has, has cursed me, and, and this is my plight in life, okay? And so the problem is, this is all of our story. I believe all of us have bought into a lie somewhere in our life. Something has been spoken over to us somewhere in our life. We have bought into something that someone might have said or we might have had an experience where someone rejected them. Sometimes it's a, a parent that leaves and all of a sudden you begin to, to, to feed into and to believe a lie about yourself. So you may grow up with a, a lie that says you're stupid, you're worthless, you're unlovable. You're not worth my time. You're just a pain in the butt. I did say butt at church, it's okay. (laughs) You are too fat, you're too skinny. Sometimes the lies are all body image stuff that just haunt us. You'll never be as good as, maybe it's your older brother or someone in the family. You're not smart enough, you're not talented enough. You're just a bad person. And here's the deal. These kind of lies, they're like a ball and chain right? They're like a ball and chain, a weight around your ankle. And it doesn't mean you can't do ministry. It doesn't mean you can't do things for God, but you're not going to be able to do them very effectively if you're always dragging this lie behind you. You're not going to be able to run the race unencumbered, as Paul would say, right? There's, it just becomes this heavy weight that we try to do what God wants us to do, but the, the lies of our lives hold us back 
So the question I want to stop and just get you to ponder for, for just a second is, is what's the lie? What's the lie that's been holding you back? I would say if you pay attention, you have spoken this lie over yourself. It's in your self-talk. It's when you're in a difficult situation and you say to yourself, man, Doug, you're just, you can't do this. You're, you're not smart enough for whatever it is. What do I say all the time? No one talks to you more than you, so you should pay attention to what you say to yourself, right? So what do you say to yourself? What's the lie that you buy into? And my encouragement to you is if you don't know what it is, and I'm just telling you, uh, I have never met somebody that doesn't have this in their back. Now, I've met a lot of people who have done the good soul work and they've let go of their lies and, and they, they know what it was and they've, they've replaced them with truth. But I've never met somebody who says, well, that's just not my experience. I, I don't have any of those anywhere in my life. If you live in a fallen world, and my guess is all of you do, then, then, you, then it's happened to you. So, so if you don't know what it is, it's a great thing for you just to ask the Lord. Maybe you don't get it for the next few days, but just ask him, God, what, what is the lie that I might have bought in? And then give it to him. Give it to God and say, God, what's the truth? Ask him to speak to you. You guys know that God still speaks? Can we, yep. And so just ask him, what is the truth? How, how do you really feel about me? So this is what ends up happening to the man born blind. He's been fed a lie his, his whole life. And I think when you read this story, if, I, I'm fairly confident that while the disciples and Jesus were speaking to one another about the man, that he was there. They were probably standing right over him. He was probably kneeled down with his cup, begging for subsistence, right? And, and they're just, they stop and they talk about him. So I think he's hearing this conversation as it's going down. He's hearing what he's heard his whole life. Who sinned? This man or his parents, right? That's, just the, that's the label that's been laid on him. But then Jesus stops and he speaks truth over the man. Verse three, it says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He didn't do anything to deserve it. Sometimes, folks, bad things happen so that the works of God might be displayed in us. Right? The blind man most likely heard the question and he heard Jesus say, no, 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 no. This happened so that the works of God can be displayed in him. Imagine how that would have woke him up. Imagine how his heart would have leaped at the moment that he heard somebody say, no, God wants to use him. He's not tainted. He's not, he's not damaged goods. God is doing something through this infirmity. God is going to use him to display who God is. Imagine how this would have been a, a moment in time for this blind man. I want to tell you this morning, the works of God are to be displayed in your life as well. That's what God wants to do. God works through us in the midst of any kind of adversity and difficulty that comes our way. People see God in us by the way we respond to those difficulties, by the way he moves through those difficulties. But if you're not careful, those lies that were on the screen can sideline you. So what if the man had just bought into the lies and said, not me. God isn't going to display anything in me, Jesus. Don't bother. I can't do anything. I'm just broken. I'm shameful. I'm sinful. You can't use me, God. You just can't use me. Right? That lie could have held him back, but it doesn't. It's not the case. So what does Jesus do? He spits on the ground and makes some mud, which we should just all own is really weird and kind of gross. <laughs> yeah, but that's what he does. 
Uh, he rubs it on the man's eye, sends him to the pool of Shalom, says, wash. At this moment, the man's never seen Jesus. He was blind when he put the mud on, and he went to the, went to the pool as a blind man. By then, Jesus isn't around the scene until we get later in the story. So he doesn't really know what Jesus looks like. He just knows what he sounded like. He goes to the pool. He gets healed. He goes to see his friends and family, and they're like, oh, this can't be the guy because we know he's been blind his whole life. And so they're like, just somebody that looks like him, which I think is really funny, actually, like, Wow, he looks just like you, but it can't be you because you were blind. He's like, no, really, it's, it's me, I swear, it's me, right? And then they're so blown away by the whole thing that they drag him into the, into, before the religious leaders, and, and, and then the religious leaders begin to interrogate him. Verse 14 gives us an important clue to the whole story. It says, now that the day in which Jesus has made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath, something that Jesus was notorious for doing, was helping people on the Sabbath, healing people on the Sabbath. But making mud and washing were both violations of the Sabbath. Now, the man-made rules of the Sabbath, not God's Sabbath. There were all kinds of silly man-made rules that, that people had to follow if they were gonna keep the Sabbath. I, I did a little research on this and just grabbed some of them. I could have made a really long list, but it's uh, against the rules to start a fire. It's against the rules uh, on the Sabbath to extinguish a fire. So if your house catches on fire, you're in rough shape. Uh, it, was, it was against the rule to tie a knot but it was also against the rule to untie a knot. So if your shoe came untied, just a long day with your shoe untied. It was against the Sabbath to put two threads together. It was against the Sabbath to write two letters. It was against the Sabbath to erase two letters. I don't know why you'd have to erase two letters if you weren't allowed to write two letters, but that's beside the case. The whole point is that these were all just silly man-made rules, and they were all put in place just to look spiritual. They were, even, even Jesus said, you do all this just so you have the appearance of being holy, but your hearts, they're far from me. This is just religious mumbo jumbo. This, just like cosmic karma is bad theology, radical Sabbath keeping is bad theology. And, and people, this is what I want you to hear. Bad theology will keep us from seeing God when he is standing and moving right in front of us. Bad theology will keep us from seeing God when he is standing and moving right in front of us. And we see this in this passage, verse 16. It says, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. They're blinded by their religiosity. They're blinded by their power. And Jesus, the man God, is standing and moving and doing unprecedented miracles, things that no one had ever seen, and they are blind to that. They can't see Jesus standing right in front of them. Lord, help us to see our bad theology so that we don't miss God when he's moving right in front of us, right? So the religious leaders, they interrogate the man that was born blind, right? But what we have to remember is, as we go into this part of the story is, this guy has always been on the outside looking in, but he's healed now. He finally has a chance to be an insider. He finally has a chance to participate in the festivals. He finally has a chance to go into the temple and be with his people. He, he finally has a chance to be in, right? It, it's his moment. Like he's, he's always been on the outside looking in, but, but now, now he's healed. Now he's not unclean and he's able to, participate. I believe that this is what he's longed for his whole life. If only I had my sight, I could be with my people. I wouldn't be shamed every day. I wouldn't be tainted in the eyes of all these people. 
right? So the religious leaders interrogate him and they ask him to share his story. They turn to him and said, what have you have to say about him? This is verse 17. After all, it was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he's a prophet. I think he probably even said that with a question mark in the end, like, I'm not sure. I, I guess because of what he did, he must be a great prophet. That's really not what they wanted to hear, right? So they bring in the parents and, and they interrogate the parents. And, and when you read the story of the parents, you begin to see something interesting. The parents are afraid. They're afraid to be bold in their response to the religious leaders. They say, ask him. He, he's an adult. He can speak for himself. Verse 22 and 23 tell us that the parents say this because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledges that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that's why the parents said, he's of age, ask him. I don't know how I would have responded. I need to be careful not to be too presumptuous. But man, I think I would have been like, that's my boy. And Jesus healed him. I'm following Jesus. I don't know who you guys are, but that's my boy. Right? You would think as you read the story that they would be much more enthusiastically embracing this Jesus who just healed their boy who had been born by. Now, that you remember, too, they've experienced years of shame because they had a child who was born blind, which probably means they, too, walked around with this label of you are sinful people because, look, you birthed a damaged child. So I'm sure they had their own self-esteem issues, but not the man born blind. What we would expect from him is, is nothing like how he actually behaves. This beaten down man who's fed a steady stream of lies his whole life, who finally has access to the in crowd, stands up and he testifies of what he knows. They call him back the second time. They begin the interrogation again. I'm going to read through the exchange with just a little bit of commentary because it's so good. And what I want you to hear is to hear the boldness of the man born blind. A second time, they summoned the man who was born blind and said, give glory to God and tell the truth. The assumption there is he was lying. We know this man is a sinner, he replied. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. And then they ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I've already told you, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Look, there is no doubt that at this moment, he has decided who he's following and who he's opposing. He has made a decision. I don't really care what you guys believe. What I do know is I was blind, and now I see. What I do know is this Jesus guy is the real deal. And so when he says these words, he is going to battle with the religious leaders. He is taking a shot at the religious leaders. So they hurl insults at him and they say, as to this fellow's disciples, oh, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses. But as far as this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And now the plot thickens. The blind man calls out their ignorance and he says, now that is remarkable. Remember, this is the uneducated blind man who's been relegated to begging for existence, who is standing up to and teaching the religious leaders. That is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opens my eyes. And we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to godly person who do his will. 
Nobody's ever even heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now that's some good theology, folks. And the religious leaders and all their fear and frustration, like, well, fine then. That's not really what they say, but that's what it looks like. So they say the only thing they know to say, you were steeped in sin at birth. They go back to their old theology. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. As quickly as he had gained access to the inner circle, he's kicked out of the inner circle. As quickly as he'd been allowed to be part of the culture, he is removed from the culture. Look, when you read that they kicked him out, you need to understand that this is a big deal. When you're kicked out of the temple, you are, you are kicked out of any chance of employment. You're usually excommunicated from your family of origin. People are told don't associate with that person because they're no longer a part of us. I mean, being kicked out of the temple was way bigger than I can't go to church on Sundays. Well, they didn't do church on Sundays, but you know what I mean. It was a big deal. And I love this about the story because it doesn't end there. Jesus heard, verse 35, that they'd thrown him out and he found him. The good shepherd heard that this man that he'd done this work for was probably a little concerned and disappointed. So Jesus found him and he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he? Sir, the man asked, tell me so that I can believe in him. Jesus said, you've seen him. Pretty cool when you've been born blind. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The man who was born blind puts his faith in Jesus. The man born blind is the first person in the book of John to worship Jesus. As best I can tell, and, and I can't find it anywhere else, I think he is the first person to worship the adult Jesus. Now we see people worshiping Jesus as the baby, the manger scene when he comes to the temple to be dedicated, but then we don't see that again until this moment. He is the first person to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and worship Jesus. So what can we learn from the man born blind? It's a great story. It is a really cool story, but what is it? What is there for us? And here's the takeaway for today. Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. Not your health, not your eyesight, not being in the in crowd, not being accepted in society, not your family, not what other people think of you. Nothing compares with knowing Jesus. If you just reflect on the story, at first glance, it seems really unfair. He's blind. He spent his whole childhood being blind. He's relegated to being a beggar because he's blind, and he didn't deserve it. Jesus says he didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. He said this happened so that the work of God can be displayed in his life. To me, that feels, at first glance, very unfair. But if you had a chance to sit with the man born blind right now and ask him, would you do it again? Was it worth it? Maybe you can ask him that when you see him in heaven someday. He'd say, absolutely. I got to meet Jesus. Jesus touched me. I'm the guy that Jesus put that mud on my eyes. I was one of the first people that got to worship Jesus. Look, because of what Jesus did to me, my people came to know who Jesus is. The work of God was displayed in my life. Would I do it again? In a heartbeat. 
because nothing compares to knowing Jesus. He wouldn't trade a thing. I hear that story so often in people who've navigated through difficult seasons, even cancer, and they say, I don't know how to explain it, but it, it, I wouldn't go back to any, it, it, it changed our lives. I met Jesus in a way I've, I've never experienced him before. God wants to show up in the midst of your adversity. 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about the man born blind. The worshiper. Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. So we're gonna move to communion, but before we do that, if the band wants to come up, that would be great. Um, I just wanna give you a chance uh, to say yes to Jesus. Some of you in the room, uh, maybe you've even been coming here for a while, um, and you've just not given your life to Christ, and and I just wanna give you the opportunity to do that. And it's really not as complicated as we sometimes make it. It's the recognition that you can't do it on your own. It's a recognition that you've sinned. It's a recognition that you've screwed up. And you're saying, God, I I know that my life's a mess. I know that I've made mistakes. I know that I've sinned against you. And I just ask that you would forgive me. And I ask that you, Jesus, would just be Lord and Savior of my life. It's just giving your life to Jesus, saying, I want to walk with you. Because nothing compares with knowing Jesus. You pray that prayer in your own words and everything will change. And I just encourage you to do that. Some of you, you've been walking with Jesus a long time, but even when I talked about the lie or some other places within this talk, you just know you got some work to do with them. And that's the beauty of communion. The scriptures say that before we partake of communion, that we ought to examine ourselves. So as the ushers come down, the people to pass it out, you can go ahead and come down. Uh, I would just encourage you. John's gonna play a little music. I just want you to, to listen to what God wants to say to you. What do you need to leave here? And what do you need to take with you? What does it look like for you to examine yourself? Hold on to the elements and we're gonna take them together. Lord, I just pray in these next few minutes that your spirit would roll across this place and that you would speak truth to us. I pray that you would show us where there's lies, that you would show us where our theology is flawed. Lord, I pray that you would just speak truth over us. Thank you for your body and your blood shed for us that we can know you and walk with you. Amen. Hold on to the elements. We'll take them together.
Scriptures tell us that on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, in that upper room, as they celebrated the Passover meal, at the end of the meal, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat it, remember me. Because in the same way he took the cup, Elijah's cup, the cup of sacrifice, the cup that had represented the coming Messiah for 1,400 years since the Passover story. That was the cup he was holding. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Every time you drink it, remember me. Lord, help us to remember, not just cognitively, mentally, but help us to remember deep in our souls and our spirit the incredible love displayed in the cross. God loved us so much that he sent his only son die that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. Help us to have that life even now. To know you, to walk with you, because nothing compares to knowing Jesus. Scriptures say that at the end of the meal, they sang a hymn. So our tradition here is that we're going to sing. So I would just encourage you to stand with us as John and the singers lead us in a song.
pray for you at 9.30 every Sunday morning. There's a group of people that meet in the uh, chapel and pray. We'd love for you to join us at that. Um, But one of the things that came through this morning was that there is some uh, marriages that are struggling. Um, If you want to come down, we would love to pray uh, for you. If you have any physical, spiritual ailments that you want us to pray for, we have a great team of people that would love to meet with you down here and pray for you. So Lord, we just pray that you would bless this day. Pray that you would hold back the rain. Uh, for the trunk or treat, and that even if you don't, that we would still show up. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.